all have questions, big questions that have a huge impact on our lives. Questions about life, faith, family, and everything in between. These topics affect all of us. So we've set aside two weeks for an honest question and response series. We've asked you to submit your questions online so you get to decide what this series is about. Often, we're not alone in the questions we have. So now it's your chance to just ask. All right, everybody, welcome to Grace Life. So good to see you guys. How are y'all doing? All right, good, good. So if you are a guest with us today, glad to have you with us. This is not uh, normal uh, for us on stage, but uh, for the rest of you, you already know that. Here's what we're doing. We are in the first of two weeks, two-part series we're doing called Just Ask, where you've been submitting questions over the last few weeks, and we've got the pastoral team up here to answer as many of those as we can, as best we can. So a couple of things for you to know. First of all, we got a lot of questions And so what that tells us is this is a good thing for you guys, that this is something you're interested in. It's a good series we should maybe do at least once a year or something like that. So we'll keep that in consideration. But what that also means, we can't answer every question. And so if we don't answer your question specifically from the stage, please keep in mind you don't have to live in the dark the rest of your life. Uh, Come find a pastor, email us, do something, and we will be happy to still talk through your question with you. We've tried to answer questions that will relate to as many people as possible in the room. And then I want to remind you there is still next week. So uh, maybe your question is going to be back then. For those of you that still would like to submit a question, you can do that online on the app or with a card in the lobby. Uh, Just make sure you do that probably no later than Tuesday. I'm pretty sure we're going to be done uh, with the list of what we're doing by Tuesday. So you might be out of luck after that. With that being said, let me introduce our panel to you today. The folks that we have up here, first of all, our mediator, not mediator, moderator, could become mediator if he gets rowdy (laughs) to be the mediator. She's Our moderator is Suzanne Bremer, having to get used to saying that because of him. Messed up my name flow there. I was used to the other one. All right, and uh, she is our graphic designer, service producer. She's usually back there making all of this happen. So she's up here asking our questions today. And then the pastoral team includes our worship pastor, Brett Floyd, almost Dr. Brett Floyd. Come on, give it up for almost Dr. We're going to do this, as Scripture says, encourage one another day by day. So we're encouraging you to become Dr. Brett Floyd. You're going to get there. And our women's pastor, Patrice Lamb, everybody, the one, the only. And my name is Jimmy, if this is your first time here. There you go. All right, so uh, did that cover everything? Good. Take it away. Give us a question. All right. Am I too young to hear from God? No. Nope. Next question. <laughs> I think it's important to remember, you know, biblical characters like Samuel, who very, at a very early age heard from God. So, no, it's, it's, you can hear from God from a very early age. I think it's important, too, after... Um, what? <laughs> is she going to ask the question? No, this go is ahead. important to say. This well, is important you, to whatever say. you'd like to say. I think it's important, too, to know that however God talks, God's going to talk to you how you can understand him. Um, he's going to talk to a six-year-old much differently than he's going to talk to Pastor Jimmy. You know, Jimmy's going to hear him at a different level than a six-year-old would, but that does not mean a six-year-old is not going to hear from God, but you truly can. And sometimes you might be wondering, you know, I don't know, maybe am I hearing from God? It would be a great um, opportunity to go to um, your youth leader, your parents, somebody that maybe is mentoring you and just saying, hey, you know, I'm hearing this and I'm feeling like maybe this is from God, what do you think? And, and then that begins to 
train you and teach you to build that muscle of hearing from God. Now. Now go. Okay. Sometimes things get tough in life. People say, just trust God. What does it really mean to trust God in trying times? We know that he can do things, so it's more than trusting that he can. We can't trust that he will because it's not necessarily always his will. So what exactly are we trusting when we trust God? Wow, that's a great question, isn't it? Uh, I think this is probably something every one of us struggles with uh, any given week. And so I could probably write a sermon on this and do it two or three times a year and it would never get old because it's always kind of the cry of our heart of how to process what God is doing versus what we want. So, you know, here's what we all know. We all know God can do anything, right? Yes. And then we also know God doesn't always do what we ask him to do the way that we ask him to do it, right? Right. So the difficulty that we have as believers, as Christians, is to reconcile those two things. And and so that really bears out as a problem for us when we're in a difficult situation. So this person is asking, try in time, something like, Uh, A family member is very sick. Maybe uh, the doctors say there's a bad diagnosis, and you're wondering, is this a time where God is going to heal and do a miracle, or is this a time where somebody is going to heaven? Um, And and that's just the dilemma that we kind of get into. So what we have to discover is this biblical truth out of Romans 8 that says, God works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that's where the difficulty comes in. We don't know if the good that God is doing is healing this person today or taking them to heaven today. And that is where when you say, can I pray for this specific outcome and believe God for this outcome? Yes, but probably best if God has told you that's what he is going to do in that situation. Otherwise, it's always great to pray for whatever you would like, but then you're going to have to trust that God sees a bigger picture and God sees something we don't see. Right? And so when the question, so what are we actually trusting? We're actually trusting God's plan because he does have one. We're trusting God's wisdom and and we're trusting God's nature. His nature is that he's good and that he blesses his children. And the reality is we can only see what we want today, but God can see how that plays out all throughout the course of humanity and over time. So an example might be like, God, I'm just tired of being broke. I really wish I could just be rich. I just want to be rich, rich, rich. That'd be great. Well, the problem is God can see that someday 20 years down the road because you're so rich that uh, your son takes the Ferrari out for a drive, wants to see if it can really do what a Ferrari could do and wraps it around a tree and your son goes to heaven, which would not be good in your mind now. And, And God can see that, so he may withhold the money that would allow you to have a Ferrari. Okay, whatever it is, God knows how everything works together for everything and we have to trust whatever his choice is, whatever his plan is, whatever his wisdom is, that he is good and he is doing good. And sometimes we can only, well, all the time, we can only see right where we are and what we think. So add to that. Somebody. Yeah, I know when I was, uh, you know, a new Christian, it was very easy to say, yes, I trust God. Uh, But then over time in my life, uh, God's brought me in situations to a point where I had no other option but to trust God. And I think sometimes God uses our situations to reveal himself to us in powerful, mighty ways. And bringing us to a place where, where we have to trust him is a way that he can show us uh, his provision and his love for us when, when he does show up and, and intersects our lives in meaningful ways. So, um, so I know in my life, God's used my cir- cir- uh, circumstances to, to really teach me more about who he is and trust him. And I think, too, remembering that we are God's children. 
and I always bring things back to parents and children. That's just kind of what I do. But I mean, he is our father. He sees the big picture of exactly everything in our life. He's has, he has it all planned out. He knows that if he does this for us or if this is what he has for us, then that's going to lead to this, which is going to lead to that, which is going to impact other people around our lives. And, you know, the whole big picture, just like a parent can see a child, a two-year-old doesn't understand why they can't let go of their mom's hand and run across the street. They don't understand that. They don't see the big picture. Not comparing us to a two-year-old, but, you know, to the infinite wisdom that God has about our lives, sometimes pretty it's pretty close, yeah. right? So... I think sometimes, you know, where a child can, a two-year-old's going to fall on the floor and throw a fit because they couldn't let go and run across the street. It's fair to say sometimes we might even look like that because we didn't get what we want when we really don't understand the big picture of what God's doing in our lives. So I think that's what we're trusting. Mm -hmm. We're trusting his wisdom and his <clears throat> knowledge in our lives. Absolutely. Good. Next. What should you do if you don't agree with something a pastor says or does? Hmm. Is there a, is there a name on that one? A not pastor. a name on that one. It says a pastor, not the pastor. So it's probably you. It's me. <laughs> you can send all complaints to Jimmy Currents at GraceLive.me. That's Brett. actually that's Boy, not your not really email. Right that's not even our, send them there. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, bring it on. Exactly. They'll never go anywhere. I love when things are lost in cyberspace, especially when you're complaining. All right, great. <laughs> Uh, well, hey, I could just say, get out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So here you go. Um, I would actually say there are three words that you need to consider, and this will tell you what you need to do. The first one would be sin. If you think there's a sin issue, uh, then you definitely have reason for alarm, and you need to figure out how to sit down with that pastor and have a conversation, because uh, this is not so much your obligation as a person to a pastor as it is Christian to Christian. Brother to brother, sister to sister, whatever it is, we are all obligated if we see a fellow brother or sister in Christ uh, that is going astray, that there's a sin issue they're not paying attention to or aware of, that you are responsible to say, hey, let me bring this to your attention. Let me see if we can work through this and talk about this. Uh, so that's the first thing. Just as a Christian, if you believe it's a sin issue, you're obligated to speak to them. If for any reason that an authority figure like a pastor would not listen to you when you bring a sin issue to them and they want to continue in that sin issue, if you're correct that that's what it is, you need to take that to a higher uh, authority. You need to go to, at Grace Life, it would be the elder board and say, hey, I've already spoken with the pastor. I believe this is a sin issue according to scripture and they're continuing in this and this is going to be negative for the entire church. Somebody needs to handle this situation. So a sin issue would be something that's very clearly wrong according to Scripture. Like if, if you were to see me out on a date with someone other than my wife, that'd be a problem. Yeah. And uh, you should have a problem with that. And so you should come and talk to me first and make sure it's not my, my young-looking mother or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, she's 70-something. She'll be glad to hear me say that. Or my sister. I have two of them. So you do need to always go and ask a question and make sure that your information is right once you've got that sin issue. The second thing then is it moves to the area of conviction. And conviction is where we interpret things differently and we have beliefs on those. And so even if you have a different conviction from what I have, you, you may still, or Brett, because it's Brett, <laughs> you may still want to sit down and talk with Brett about your conviction uh, because I know many times my conviction has been changed in life because I've seen the impact 
that it's had on other people. And for the sake of the people I wanted to lead, I changed a conviction. Not that I believed it was a sin to do it that way, but I said, it is better for me to do this instead of that and became a conviction. A conviction could be an example of your stance on should someone be allowed to have a glass of wine. There are many Christians who believe you can have a glass of wine and there are Christians who believe you can have no alcohol whatsoever. That would be a conviction. There is scripture to speak to both sides of that situation. And then the last word would be opinion. You may simply have an opinion. An opinion could be you show up at the office on Tuesday afternoon and we're in shorts and flip-flops and t-shirts, which is pretty common around here. And you may be appalled that a pastor would be in his office, you know, in such relaxed atmosphere or whatever. Maybe you Maybe your opinion is we should come in at 5 in the morning and we don't come in until 8.30 or 9, whatever. Those are opinions. And if you have a different opinion, you need to understand that in a church, there is no church anywhere that everyone is always going to agree on all the opinions that there are out there. So you're simply going to have to decide. Uh, if there's a sin issue, you need to probably find a new church. If you cannot have conversations that change that, you should not stay in a church where there is sin. If there is a conviction, you need to decide, is this a conviction that's a deal breaker for you? There are convictions I have that I could go to a church and that'd be okay if it were different. And then there are ones I have that it would not be okay if it were different. I need to find a church where those convictions are the same. And then you just need to realize that opinions are what they are. They're opinions. Anything, Dad? Everyone has one. And everybody has one. (laughs) Nothing else? Nope. Okay, cool. Next. Next. How do I come back from sexual impurity? Who wants to stab that one? Um, how about this? First John 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And here's the important part, purify us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. So that's what we're asking about, right? That's what we want is to come back from impurity. That means getting back to a place of purity. And so when I was looking over this question, I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me four C's for your answer. And so whoever this is, write these down. Uh, it might be the makings of a good sermon somewhere in the future. Starts with this one, confess, confession. You've got to bring this thing into the light. Make it known. Now that does not mean Facebook. Please do not confess your sins on Facebook. <laughs> it also does not mean you need the microphone and the stage next week, okay? But what it probably means is that you need uh, to talk to an authority in your life. If you're a teenager or a child, you're going to need to confess to your parents. If you're married, you're going to need to confess to your spouse. Uh, if you've uh, got a mentor, you should have a mentor. You should have a pastor or a pastoral voice. Go to them and, and confess what's been taking place. That makes it known. Then after you make it known, you need to move to the next one, which is make a change. So we have to change. If you want to get away from this, you're saying come back from sexual impurity, the first thing you've got to do is stop visiting it every week. If you continue in the same activity, you're never going to come back from that. Uh, And then the last two words are community and what was my other one? Uh, Counseling, community and counseling. So, you know, one way to stay pure, one way to stay encouraged, one way to to choose right over wrong is to have community with God's people, to be in a group of believers that are encouraging you every week and are strengthening you and they know, maybe some of them know what you're struggling with, they're able to really support you in that. And then the last one is the idea of counseling. All too often, we do not get the help we really need. Uh, You know, uh, there are a lot of really good Christian counselors out there that have dedicated their lives to helping you walk through the trauma, the scars, the memories, the pain, uh, the impact that has come out of that. And all too often, we don't use that. And so that stuff stays in our lives. And that's why we don't feel like we can come back from impurity 
because we haven't really learned how to process that in our soul, because that is still a difficult thing. We, and uh, so we, we need to get, get some professional help. I would highly recommend many times. Yeah, I think confession, you know, that's where Jimmy started, but I think that's, um, that's probably, that's the first step. And all, oftentimes I, that might be the hardest because the enemy would want to keep you stuck right where you're at. They want to keep you stuck in that place where, you know, you feel unworthy, you feel not good enough, you feel broken. And that's really where the enemy wants. But, you know, just like, you know, our worship this morning, I mean, you know, Christ came to break all that, to break those chains, to break that bondage. But it does begin with confession because unless we confess it, that sin's going to stay hidden in darkness. And where it's hidden in darkness, there's going to be power. And, you know, a lot of times I know I've walked with several people, you know, through several situations and that's so hard for them to confess that very first time. But once it's confessed, it's just... You know, it, it allows, the, it allows um, God to come in and then to begin walking through the next few steps. But it's got to be, begin with confession to somebody you trust. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of times people might confess or they, they might try to change, but they do it on their own. They try to do it on their own strength. Um, and I really think the, the, second, uh, the third and fourth thing that, that Jimmy said, the uh, community, um, find people that can help you be accountable. Um, find people who have struggled and had victory in the same issues you're facing. And also find counseling. A lot of times sexual sin is uh, habitual and it's addictive. And uh, someone who professionally can help you deal with that, can help you break those addictions and break those cycles and, uh, and find new life and, and a lot of freedom. So I think those two, the, the community and the counseling, are really important steps to take. Don't do it on your own. Um, find a community and counseling. It would really be helpful. I think we can uh, help everyone here by thinking a little more broad uh, in terms of what we're dealing with here. You know, uh, God has made it very clear in his word how he wants us to use our bodies um, for moral purity and uh, for intimacy, physical intimacy with someone else, and that there is a right and there is a wrong there. And so when we take that thing and we do the opposite and we distort that, it really is you know, sometimes we think about it as just middle ground, like there's black, there's white, and this is just kind of gray. Well, the reality is it's not. It is, uh, it is something that's born out of, of the kingdom of darkness. So I'd go as far as to say that a lot of the sexual stuff that we get into with the sin actually is a demonic power, and uh, it, it entangles us. Yeah. And so, you know, what, what we struggle with is getting free of that because the guilt and the shame that comes with that as well as the, the addiction or the scars and the stronghold and all of those things that the enemy brings, it's very difficult for us just to say, hey, I'm going to stop doing this, and then to feel good. Being forgiven and changing, that's great. But really getting to a point where you feel free and you feel healed, you're going to need some help in processing that and learning to break the power that the enemy has created over that. So that's all I got. That's good. Is it okay for small groups to meet every other week instead of every week? Sure, if you want to. Uh, basically, what you're asking here is a question of why does Grace Life meet every week? And uh, I'll answer that as fast as I can with a math problem. Um, so those of you that were good at school, here you go. Uh, there are 52 weeks in a year, but due to holidays and summer travel and summer vacation and everything else, we meet as our life groups and small groups only twice a year, two cycles a year that go from the end of January to May and that go from September until December. That may sound like a lot. The reality is that's 26 weeks 
out of 52, which means we already are really only meeting every other week. That's just kind of how that works. Uh, so if we turn that into every other week, then that means we would only meet about 13 times a year, which is about a quarter of the year. And then if you happen to one of those nights uh, have to work late or a little league game or something like that, then you are never going to have an opportunity to be with other people in a small group setting. So I would like to tell you why we do this. Uh, scripture actually in Acts 2 says that day by day they were meeting in each other's homes. This wasn't just something they felt like they had to do, as this person may feel you have to do. You shouldn't have to do it. It was something that gave them life. It was something they wanted to do. And they were doing it so often, it was probably multiple times a week. So think about it like this. When you've got to make a choice, so apparently whoever's asking this question, which I bet is not just one person, you've got an incredibly busy schedule, and so you're wishing life groups were just every other week because that would be more convenient. Well, what if something else were changed in the schedule? Think about it like this. There's 168 hours in the week. I did that in advance because I'm not good enough to do that on stage. There's 168 hours in the week. We're going to spend 40 to 50 or more of those at work. We're going to spend about 50 of those sleeping. Uh, some of you are, are really good TV watchers. You're only going to spend about seven hours a week watching TV. Others of us are going to make it up into the 2030 realm or worse. Uh, so why is it that when we look at a, a routine like that, that we get to a point and say, one or one and a half hour a week, ah, man, that's just too much to spend with other believers being encouraged and strengthened and challenged in my faith. So why is it that we're looking at that one or one and a half and we can't find room for that, but we can find room for all of those other tens and twenties and fifties and so forth? So I'd, I'd really just encourage you to look at it that way. But that is why we do it every week is because even doing it every week, we only hit half a year. Anything, Dad? That was good. Cool. Next. <laughs> I am a new mom struggling with feeling unattractive because of my mom pooch. I don't know if I need more self-discipline with eating and exercise or a less harsh body image of myself, or most likely both. Any recommendations for maintaining this balance? <laughs> like I'm I have not, all the answers I'm in that. I'm not touching that one. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have all the answers. Cause I t but, but I can say but that I, five kids, so I have five kids, and I absolutely 100% understand where you're coming from, definitely. Um, I think the part that, you know, the, the last part of the question was, um, you know, any, recommend, any recommendations for maintaining a balance? And I think balance is absolutely the key um, word mm -hmm. here. There's definitely a balance. I mean, there, you know, there's women who have children and, you know, they have a baby and they feel like that gives them, you know, full rides never to get dressed in real clothes again, you know, they're in their sweatpants, they're in their big t-shirts, they've got their hair up on the top of their head, which you may go through a season of that, that that's really all you can do. That's, that, that's as much as you can give your, your baby, you're keeping your baby alive, you're maybe feeding your spouse and your other children, and that's just all you can give during that time. Well, it happens. Those are the... <laughs> really? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so there, there's you know, there, there's the balance. There's also seasons. I think that's really important. In um, Ecclesiastes 3, it says to everything, so everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. So there is that season where it's okay to say, you know what, I do have this mommy pooch, pouch, whatever we, what is it? Pouch, pooch, pooch. What did you call it? <laughs> kangaroos pooch. have pouches. I know. Kangaroos have a pouch. <laughs> let's, let's go Sometimes pooch. you feel like you have a pouch. <laughs> a pooch. 
And, um, and you, it might be okay for that season just to, just to be where you're at. But I think it's also important to um, communicate with your spouse. If you have a spouse and you've, you know, you're together on this, communicate with your spouse. This is where I'm at. What do you think? Because ultimately, that's really most important. What does my spouse think of this baby pooch? You know, what, what does my spouse think of my, you know, how I'm changing? And there's one other thing that I do want to point out when it comes to the spouse you know, postpartum depression actually is a really true thing. It's very, very, very real. So if you're in this place and you're looking for a balance and you just can't seem to get that balance, it's just all, you know, dismal. It's all bad. It's all, I just can't do this. It might be time to just seek some professional help. Um, and again, a, a husband is going to be able or somebody close to you is going to be able to step in and say, you know, you might need some help in this area. And that's okay. It is not, we do not have to be Wonder Woman. As much as we think we're supposed to be, we don't have to be Wonder Woman. There's one more verse I want to point out. I know I'm taking a long time with this question. It's kind of dear to my heart. There's a lot of ladies. So it's okay. There's a lot of ladies and, and I have a lot to say. So the last verse was 2 Corinthians 4.16. It says, so do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So there's hope in that, in that we are being renewed day by day. If we're walking with the Lord, we are constantly being renewed in our inner self, which is really where it all counts. And it tells us the outer self is wasting away. We're never going to go back to that, you know, 18, 20, 27, whatever, year old body. As we grow older, grow older in wisdom and become wiser, something else is losing out. And sometimes it could be our bodies. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it, it is important that you figure out a way to remain attractive to your spouse. Right. But the world should not be the one who sets that standard of beauty. So I just want to take a moment and speak to the men in the room. And that is that really your standard of beauty changes as life goes on. You know, when you're 90 years old, what you are looking for with the person beside you that's also 90 and has white hair and might need a cane, uh, you're looking at someone who has spent 65 years married to you. And that should be way more beautiful in your eyes than an 18-year-old swimsuit model. And so the same thing should happen when someone has uh, been your wife and walked through having two or five children or whatever the case is. Uh, you know, there might be a problem in your heart if you're setting a standard of beauty for your wife that she looked like an 18-year-old swimsuit model after uh, having children. And so I'd encourage you to get in a men's small group that can help you with that. That meets every week. Every week. Every week. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important to, uh, to not allow our culture's idea of, of, of beauty and our culture's idea of newness. We're, we're, we're very... Uh, infatuated with new, you know, we get an iPhone 7 in October of last year. By the time the iPhone 8 comes out, our iPhone 7's trash, and now we need the new. We're infatuated with new, and and it's really important to not let our culture's uh, ideas uh, to get in your head and, and to let the enemy kind of tear you down about who you are. Many things get wonderful with age, and I think people are one of those things. And um, to be able to look at, at uh, a baby pooch, as you say it, um, that's a marker, that's a reminder of what you and your husband and your family has gone through and done. And um, I, I say it's, it's something to be proud of, honestly. Um, and uh, so there's balance always, but don't let the culture get into your head and let the enemy use that to tear you down. That's it's good. important to remember. That's good. Next. 
How do we know what law we are free from and what is still sin? I was reading through Leviticus, and it said you should not have sex with your husband during menstruation. My husband and I do and have not felt convicted about this. But this command is placed right between don't have sex with your wife's sister or neighbor's wife, which is still relevant. All right, Jimmy. There you go. Take it away, man. We're listening. Uh, first, I would remind you that as you read that, you said it's right between don't have sex with your neighbor's, neighbor's wife, neighbor's wife, wife. not neighbor's sister, neighbor's <laughs> wife and wife's sister. sister. Did I get that right? Wife's sister. Those are also commanded throughout Scripture in other places in the New Testament. Those are called adultery, uh, fornication, and uh, could even be called coveting because you would rather be with your neighbor's wife. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So the point to that is those are mentioned and clearly stated as sins we need to deal with in our lives today uh, all throughout Scripture. But here's the real thing that I think we lose sight of. And so if we could back away from that one example, let me just help everybody here this morning because the question is, what, um, how do you know what law you're free from? And the answer is all of it or none of it. And that's the way it works. So if you would call yourself a believer, if you would call yourself a Christian, if you would say Jesus died for you and you now live for him, he is the king of your life. He's the Lord and savior of your life, whatever terminology you want to use. If you are a genuine Christian, however I can define that as best I can for you, then what that means is you no longer use the law to earn righteousness. So let me clarify, there are two reasons for the law. When we talk about the law, sometimes you hear people say the Old Testament law because that's where it was mostly written and revealed. So the law had two purposes. One was to show us how to honor God. And then the second one was to show us how to earn our righteousness, how to earn being right with God. But if you are a believer, you are very much aware you can never earn being right with God, so you have received the free gift of salvation, right? And so you are forgiven for those sins. You are free from the law. You are free from all of the law. So now the question only comes down to this, which is, how do I honor God? How do I deal with those things? So it's really kind of the pastor question we were having a minute ago. Convictions, opinions, and sins, right? And so there are things that have not changed in how to honor God. We're no longer going to get to heaven by the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments still tell us God doesn't like lying. God doesn't like adultery. So although you're not going to get to heaven without Jesus' death, by making sure you do that perfectly, it is still a way to honor God. You have to look at those things and decide which ones are you good with. For instance, Leviticus also says that pork is off limits. But in our dream team room, every single week we serve bacon or pork sausage. Those on the dream team, there you go, hallelujah, on the dream team. Those of you not on the dream team, that was our commercial for why you should get on the dream team. And so there are people, though, that have a conviction about that. I know pastors who would not dare to eat bacon or pork. And so uh, you've got to decide where that is for you. And clearly for this person, they say they don't feel convicted, they don't feel guilty about it. Well, okay, because in the same book, it also tells you not to wear blended fabrics. And I guarantee you, all of us here today are not wearing 100% cotton. So there are things that you have to decide, what does God want us to do in 2017 with this? And which ones are still relevant like your neighbor's wife? Who wants to add to that? Anything? I think I would just add that, you know, definitely there's standards in the Levitical law that would, you know, 
help us walk through a healthier lifestyle. Um, you know, and I think, you know, people that would say I'm not going to eat pork are doing that for health reasons. Well, I don't know. I mean, they might be, there might be some legalistic stuff going on there, but you may choose to do that for health purposes. There's, there's some other things in Levitical law that you would avoid or that you would engage in for health reasons. And, um, you know, and then this example in and of itself, again, that communication between spouse would be a good way to, you know, decide whether this is for you or for not for you or not for you, but it's more of a conviction rather than the law that we must live under. If you're saved by Jesus, you are free from all of the law. Right. But you still have to honor God with your life. That's right. Next. How do we draw closer to God? Big ladder. (laughs) Big, big big ladder. ladder. I would say start with the Bible. Uh, God, uh, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. It is how he has made himself known. And so you are never going to know God as well any other way, and you're never going to know God as well as you will through Scripture. So begin to read his word. Yes, you will have lots of questions like Leviticus. You'll have 100 questions in Leviticus. Probably shouldn't start there, but that is how you get to know him. Second thing is I would say prayer which people think is some weird thing you have to do in a weird way. The truth is it's just a conversation. It's just talking to God. So uh, read what God has written about himself and then begin to talk to him. And uh, somebody add to that. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think back when I started dating my wife and I wanted to get close to her, I wanted to know her. And so one of the things you did, we did is we went on dates. We reserved time so that we can be close to each other, we can talk to each other. And I think sometimes the simple answer is the best answer is that you just need to reserve time to talk to God, to be with him, to read his Bible. Um, And and when you're close to him, then you will know him better. And so just make sure you reserve that time uh, daily to spend time with him. And just through that act alone, you'll start to become closer to God. And I think, too, just like his, you know, pursuing his wife at the time, you know, his the woman he wanted to date and what my relationship looks like, you know, with my husband and as, you know, we um, get to know one another and communicate with one another, it's going to look very different. So there doesn't have to be, a, you know, an equation, A, B, C equals D or whatever. It, it has to be very personal to you. But, you know, draw close to him and he will draw close to you. And that's how you get to know him. And, and you can stand on that as a promise. That is a promise of God. Absolutely. It's in the Bible. It says draw yes. near to God and he will draw near to you. So... Uh, just keep reading, keep talking, keep spending time with him. You will know him better next week than you do today and next year than you do right. this week. And that is right. how that works. Are there real prophets on earth today? There should be. Good. At least there should be. I'll say it that way. According to Scripture, there should be. So a couple of passages that will help us here. Acts 2 quotes an Old Testament prophet Joel and uh, where God says in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. So that was uh, written near the end of the Old Testament time. It was quoted after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means it has clear implication for the New Testament Christian for us in our world today, that I was not just talking about something that happened in the Old Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, which is telling us how to live our life, uh, today tells us to pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. So clearly, according to scripture, there should be. Uh, Now, what gets into our head, though, is when we think prophet, we think Isaiah. And Isaiah walked naked on the earth for three years. And uh, that would be kind of weird. If somebody walked naked 
in the church and said, I'm just a prophet, get off my back, right? You know, uh, that would be a problem. So one of the things that comes to mind when we talk about prophets is we immediately think of the Old Testament prophet and their purpose, and we don't understand the New Testament prophet and its purpose. So for the Old Testament, God's people were a singular nation. They were the people of Israel. And so typically, God would raise up a voice to that nation. We'd call them a prophet. So that voice would come and say, hey, this is what God wants for you. Almost exclusively, that voice was telling them to repent because they were constantly in error. They would keep ignoring God and going the other way. And so God would have to spend almost all of his effort through this voice or voices saying, get back on track, get back on track, get back on track. And so when we read most of the Old Testament prophetic works, that's what we're seeing, that's what we're experiencing And so we're honestly afraid. We don't want that today. We don't want someone to stand up here and say, you're horrible people, get back in line or I'm going to judge you and and whatever. You know, we don't want to hear that. And so we, we don't think that that should happen today. But what we see in the New Testament in Ephesians is it tells us how God's going to build his church. It says he's going to give some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors. We're still here today. Some as teachers. We're still here today. And some as evangelists. Did I do something twice? I've got distracted myself with messing up the verse. Um, For the building up of the church. That's what, what God is giving us to still build the church today. Except for in the New Testament, the purpose of that prophecy is to encourage and to strengthen not to speak as a singular voice to a nation. So it serves more individually to confirm what God is speaking to the believers in the church and to the call of the church, maybe to give warning against spiritual attack and so forth. So the answer is there should be. The question is, why is there not? Well, first of all, it's weird to most of us. And so for most of us, we grew up in a church world where that was just something that wasn't talked about, wasn't encouraged. And so there's not enough churches, in my opinion, on the earth today that are still explaining what is godly prophecy, how do you do this in a correct way without getting off the rails. And uh, then when churches don't acknowledge that, maybe some churches, actually some churches do, their doctrinal stance would answer this question by saying no. So if you grow up in that church and God has called you to be a prophet, you're not even going to know that's an option, right? Right? So even if you were created to be the best basketball player in the world, but your parents didn't own a basketball, they never let you watch a basketball game, and you never heard the word basketball, you obviously would not be able to do that. Does that make sense? So there are some people that simply are not raised in an environment to understand who they are and what they're called to do, which produces a lack of those prophets. And then in the few churches that do believe that we should still have this spiritual gift today, there is simply not good training. We train pastors every day, we train teachers every day, and there is not enough good training for evangelists either or prophets. And so as a result, we look around, there's almost none, and we think it shouldn't exist. But according to Scripture, it should. And we believe it does. And here at Grace Life, we do believe it does, and we do believe it should. But keep your clothes on. Right. It should look a little different. No more Isaiah stuff. (laughs) You mentioned in passing about Leviticus this past Sunday, and I was curious when you read Leviticus and all of the infectious diseases and everything, what kind of wisdom do you take from Old Testament passages like Leviticus? Well, that is a great question. So do I have to answer that because I'm the one that mentioned Leviticus last week? Is that what that comes down to? Um, yeah. Here's what I get when I read the Old Testament. You know, we, we get into those things where you're reading so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. How many of you are, like, miserable at that point? You know, and so sometimes we think there's so much of this Old Testament we don't need. Let's just get through it. Let's ignore it, whatever. And uh, one of the things you can get out of those gene- genealogies, for instance, is discovering who God has used and who God has redeemed. And when you look 
and Jesus' genealogy alone and the people that are in that, it gives us hope and faith. If God could use those people to birth the Messiah, to be a part of his line, then he can use us. And so sometimes lost in the detail are really cool things that gets lost in the detail because we're bored with it. In particular, the infectious skin disease type of thing. You know, one thing we don't see sometimes when we're reading Leviticus, we're seeing these rules and the way God wants us to do this and that. And it sounds so miserable, just like, well, if, you know, this happens, you know, set this outside the camp and see what happens three days later. And if this happens, throw them outside the camp for a week and this and that, you know, whatever. And it just sounds like it's so mean. But think about it this way. It's actually the goodness and the mercy of God. And here's what I mean by that. Up until about 200 years ago, we would still use leeches for most cures. We thought that if we were sick, the best way to get the sickness out of us was to get rid of our blood. It had to be in our blood. Let's put a leech on. So imagine their medical understanding thousands of years ago. And it is the goodness and the mercy of God to say, hey, there is going to be an infectious, hello, spreads, makes you all sick, disease that's going to come among you. So let me just give you some wisdom and some advice. And if you want to consider a religious rule, that's, that's, you can. But the reality here is I'm just trying to be a good father to my children. I'm just trying to tell you what to do and how to make this thing have the least impact and the least devastation among the people. So when we read those rules, sometimes we totally miss out that God is just being good. And then the last thing I would say, what I love, because I'm, an, I'm a detailed person. I'm kind of OCD. People were making fun of me earlier this morning, but anyway, that's okay is it shows how detailed God is. I mean, if you've ever read that and God's like, do it this way, not that way, exactly this way at this time of the day and this, you know, turn your head this way when you do it, just kidding. Uh, that, it makes you realize God is so focused on the details. He cares about the little stuff and that should encourage you and me because we're little stuff. I mean, I don't mean to like burst your self-esteem bubble because you're all so huge and important, but there are 7 billion of us on the planet right now alone. And so when you lift up a prayer to God and you're thinking, how do, I, how do I have any faith God will even listen to little old me? Is if God cares about the exact minute you do that and the exact type of cloth you hold it with and the exact way that you do facing the sun or whatever, it's because he cares about you. He cares about the details. And that encourages me. I don't see all of the bad rules and I mean, it, it kind of just depends on probably how you were raised as to whether you see this as the most rigid rules or you see this as a good God who cares about even the smallest stuff. Yeah, that's good. And nothing else. Next. All right. Our last question for today is when does God stop forgiving you? Meaning if I have a problem that is sinful and I continue to falter, does God turn his back on me? Wow. When does God stop forgiving you? I think that's a great question that there's a lot of people here who are really struggling with this because, you know, we, we, we're having days and weeks and maybe even months where we're just like, man, we're riding a wave, we're doing great, having a great time with God, and everything is great, and then sometimes things come back up. For some of us, it's every couple of months. Others of us, it's every couple of days. You know, uh, Peter asked Jesus a question, and Jesus' answer about how often you should forgive was 70 times 7. And what that really means is lose count. You can't keep up count. With every person in your life, 70 times 7. You, you, you're going to lose track. And so the idea was forgiveness is infinite. And so if, if that's what Jesus is telling us to do to each other, that's because that's the Father's heart towards us, right? And so really kind of a way we answered a question earlier, what we really need to understand is this. You're either forgiven for everything or for none. It's not like tomorrow his forgiveness is going to run out. 
It's not like his mercy is limited. Matter of fact, scripture is very clear that his mercies are new every day. His mercy is new for you today, even though you did the same thing yesterday. So the reality is this, you're either forgiven for everything or you're forgiven for nothing. You're forgiven for everything if you recognize Jesus died for you. And you're forgiven for nothing if you don't recognize that. And so the difference between what you're talking about this struggle is really now the question, where's your heart? Because it's not when does this forgiveness run out. The question is, are you forgiven at all? You know, if you're a person who says, I don't really care what God wants. I've heard he forgives everything. I'm just going to go and do whatever I want. And then you feel guilty. Well, lots of humans feel guilty because we're made in the image of God. There's an imprint of God and his nature in us. So even before someone is a believer, they still have something in them that feels guilty. Feeling guilty is not the issue. The issue is, do you feel sorry that you sinned against God? And Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament, even was one who said, look, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. Man, what's the problem with me? And the answer is, you're a human, Paul. Join the club. We've got a sin nature, and we are messed up. And we will wake up tomorrow and repeat the same stupid mistakes we've done before, which goes back to one of the first things we answered. Sometimes it's simply because we don't ever get the real freedom we need. We may repent, we may confess, but we don't get the counseling or we don't get the help. And so something that has a demonic hold on us, something that's a stronghold, something that's an addiction that we think we can just get up and try really hard not to do again, we find out we're horribly wrong because we do it again, because we haven't dealt with the power behind it. So if the question is, how many times can I be forgiven? forgiven? When does forgiveness run out? Well, if you're forgiven at all, you're forgiven for all tomorrow included and the day after, right? If on the other hand, your question is, how can I stop faltering? Well, then maybe you need to deal with the power that keeps dragging you back into it, which again, I would lead you back to the the other question we did earlier. Let's talk to someone, let's confess something, let's make a change, but evidently the change is difficult and you're not succeeding. So let's get some help with that so that you can walk in freedom. So that does give us a great place to wrap up and make sure we understand. It's come out a couple of times today that the real issue is do you recognize Jesus died for you? That is ultimately what we're dealing with at this point is is not are you going to church week after week after week and trying really hard to be really good? Maybe you're asking this, this question. Maybe you were the very person who asked it. Maybe every day you wake up and you find yourself getting angry again or struggling with a sexual sin again or whatever it is and you keep going to church trying to be a good person a good person every weekend week out and you do this thing and somehow it just never helps you get free and maybe that's because you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and said thank you that you died for me I want to live for you if you've never done that I want to help you do that here this morning you don't have to do anything weird or stand up or come down front just right where you're seated would you all join me and say something like this to yourself and to God Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your forgiveness. And my simple prayer here today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen.
for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.